If you take your Bible, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to be in verse 16 through 33. 16 through 33. Don't worry, I'm not rolling my sleeves up because I'm mad or anything like that. This isn't, you know, I just, you know, sometimes you're just like, man, I'm tired of, I'm tired of sleeves, right? So excited to talk about this passage of God's Word. Um, and I woke up this morning excited to get to eat together again with you and to slow down a little bit um, and to hear what God's been doing uh, in your life. Um, so I'm excited for that component back uh, today. Really am. So if you'll take your Bible and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to let you stretch your legs one last time here. It's really good because you'll be sitting down for a minute. Would you stand in, as we reverence God's Word, as we read God's Word? This is verse 16 through 33. Uh, in your bulletin, the title of the message is Comparing Pastoral Resumes. Pa- comparing Pastoral Resumes. As you read this text, you're, you're going to notice the idea that Paul has a resume that he puts out before the Corinthians. His resume looks different than the resume of all the false teachers that he's been trying to um, trying to point out to the Corinthians. But you'll see more of that in the, in the message. He says in verse 16, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Again I say, let no one think me foolish. But if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I'm saying, I am not saying according to the Lord, but as in foolishness and this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, and are bearing the foolish gladly. And you bear it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weakened by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is daring, I speak in foolishness. I am just as daring myself. Verse 22, and the Hebrew, and are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's seed? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments and beatings without number in frequent dangers of death. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardships and many sleepless nights and starvation and thirst, often hungry and cold and without enough clothing. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is made to stumble without my burning concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever knows, and I am not lying, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Eratus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. 
We just ask God to bless it. This is your word. Would you let me teach it with the intent that the original author, through the inspiration of, this, of, of God, to the original recipients, let us capture the best we can that message and then let us interpret it and, trans, uh, interpret it and apply it and contextualize it so that we could love you, glorify you, adore you, be God's people on mission to make disciples that glorify God. Would you do this? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I have in my hand probably one of the most revolutionary inventions ever, right? Revolutionary, right? Any idea what you think this may be in my hand? A, a what? A microchip. Man, that's a really good one, right? But a microchip would not have helped me when I was a little kid, right? This is probably the best invention. In fact, I'm bitter that in the 80s and 90s, this invention was not available. It's in my hand. Microchip was great, but that wouldn't have helped me. What else do you think is in my hand, probably? What? O2. Nitrous oxygen, or O2, oxygen, okay. Carbon, okay. Oxygen, okay. O2, right, okay. O2. Said O2, you can got fire a gun. You can fire your, your O2 cartridges. You can fire your guns with it, right, or something like that, right? What else? A USB port. Oh, that's pretty nice. But in the 80s and 90s, that would not have helped me. Any other ideas which you think may be in my hand? You're going to be shocked. But, but you know, if you lived through that time, you know the pain. The pain of what I'm talking about. The pain of disco. John Travolta is not in my hand. You'd have to be old enough to understand what that means, right? A bottle of hairspray, like one of those small ones, travel size. That actually, as a junior high boy, I loved my hair back in the day. All right, I love my hair. All right, final guess. Anybody have a final guess? A Lego. Oh man. Well, great tries, but you're all wrong. Does anybody know what this is? It's 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 not the ones off the Matrix, right? NyQuil. NyQuil. These two NyQuil caps, if there is any invention I wish existed when I was little, it's these two NyQuil caps. Do you remember when you would get stuffy, you cough, you couldn't sleep at night? Your parents didn't want to hear you hack and cough all night. They know that you would be uh, kind of grumpy the next day if you didn't have NyQuil. And you remember, we didn't have this. Y'all remember getting that spoonful, that liquid NyQuil? And you remember putting that in your mouth? Does anybody remember how bad that tasted? Does anybody remember the gag reflex you have as a little kid? And, and, you, and you had to take it. You remember, do you remember this? Your parents would stand over you. And what would they say to you? Is they put this in your mouth. What would they say? Swallow it. Swallow it. You remember just putting it in and just... Like everything in your body was just tensing up with the thought of swallowing this liquid NyQuil. Do y'all remember this? I do, right? I have post-traumatic stress as a result, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to break down and crawl in the corner and get in the fetal position here in a minute, right? It, I remember it. It was bad. But this is a great invention because now it's not like that, right? I mean, now you can just swallow these two and these bad boys accomplish the same task so you can get your rest, what? Medicine, Right? Now, I hold that up just to kind of point, this is a great invention. wasn't around when I was little. So one of the things that you had to do when you were little, um, when you were growing up, 
is when that liquid knockout came out, it was one of those things that eventually you just had to reconcile yourself as a young person. I'm just going to have to go through it. I don't want to do it, but I have no other option. I'm going to have to swallow these two heaping teaspoons full of NyQuil. You just knew at some point you were not going to win this battle. At some point, your parents went out. You're just going to have to go through it. I remember that. That was kind of the idea that I always had was, okay, you're just going to have to go through it. Now, I tell you all that for this reason. Paul has finally gotten to this point in chapter 11 where he's going to do something he doesn't want to do. It's, it's the, almost the equivalent of, of, of little elementary age Nick having to swallow two spoonfuls of NyQuil. I never wanted to do it, but sometimes I just had to do it. Why did I have to do it? Because I would sleep through the night. My parents could get sleep. There'd be less coughing. I would be ready to go to school the next day. It's something I didn't want to do, but sometimes you just had to recognize you're going to have to go through it. Paul is doing something in this chapter he has not wanted to do. He has, has a little bit of a disdain in his, a distaste in his mouth. You can even see it in him employing sarcasm. Anybody speak the language of sarcasm in here? All right. Paul has to use this. Paul does not want to do what he's about to do, but he must, for the glory of God and the good of these Corinthians, he does something that honestly is probably pretty dangerous, and I'm not confident that we, um, on average, would be able to pull this off very well, but he does. He does. He has to go through it. He has to do it. He doesn't want to, but he must. Paul decides to take out his resume. And he decides to take out his resume and boast about his resume. This is not something that Paul wants to do. Now, the false apostles that we've been reading about, these false teachers who were teaching, you can be saved by your good works, they had no problem boasting about their resume. They would boast about their resume and then talk bad about Paul's resume. Paul says, I have not wanted to boast about anything but Jesus, but fine, fine. The only way I can help you is to show you there's a clear difference between a true apostle of Christ and a false apostle of Christ. And it's come to this point. I'm going to have to swallow the two spoonfuls of NyQuil. I'm going to have to pull out my resume and show you how the apostolic ministry I've had to you is superior to this false ministry. They've been teaching you things that are not the gospel. Sometimes you just got to go through it. You just got to do what you don't want to do because it's the right thing. So that's what Paul does in the text. Now, if you've got a outline, I'm, I kind of list this out. Point one on your outline, and we'll be in verse 16 through 18. First, number one, he goes through the distasteful act of boasting. He goes through it. He doesn't want to do it, but he realizes he must do it. If you look at verse 16, look at it. You'll kind of have the perspective of it. You'll see it. It's, he's, he's comparing his pastoral resume to that of the false teacher's. He says in verse 16, again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do receive me, even as foolish. By the way, I just want to tell you, one of the most difficult portions of scripture to understand are about the next six to eight verses. Probably one of the most confusing passages in the text of scripture to understand is this. So I, I, the, burden, the burden is on me to try to communicate the best I can, but hang with me. This is not easy. Look in verse 16. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do... Receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. Paul's basically saying this idea of 
this is foolish, what I'm about to do. But you guys like foolishness, okay? So I'm going to get on your level. I'm going to answer you with some foolishness. I'm going to boast about myself. I detest it, and I don't want to do it. Keep looking at the next verse in verse 17. He says, what I am saying, I am not saying according to the Lord. Now watch it. He's not saying God is not inspiring me to write this. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you do not see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus did not defend himself, did not take up for himself, did not put his resume on display for the glory of God and good of others. He sacrificed. He was a perfect, humble sacrifice. He says, this is not the way of Jesus. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through this. But I have to. So he says in verse 17, I'm not saying according to the Lord. He's not saying that God didn't inspire him to write this. He's saying, this is not what you see in the life of Jesus. But he's got to do it for their good. They have been so duped and tricked by these false teachers who had elevated themselves that Paul had to do it so that he could get back to the clear gospel message for them. So he says in verse 17, look at it. I'm saying according to the Lord, but as in foolishness and this confidence of boasting. He says, I'm going to have to boast. It's foolishness. Look at verse 18. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. The false teachers have boasted about the flesh. They had boasted in their accomplishments. They had boasted in the amount of money they had received. They had boasted in their teaching and oratorical abilities. And Paul says, fine, I'm going to go through it. It's foolishness. I don't want to do this, but I'm going to boast In my flesh. Now here's the trick though. They boasted in their flesh how great their flesh was. You're going to see a little bit different. Paul, when he talks about his resume, he actually doesn't talk about how great he is. He actually talks about how weak he is. It actually throws into contempt all the things that they value. For instance, if you went on a job, before you go for a job interview, you typically turn in a resume. Now, have, has anybody ever on a resume just decided to not talk about any of the positive things you've accomplished in your career, but just put all the failures, right? What kind of resume would that look like? Man, a, what if you saw today on LinkedIn or whatever place you would go to find a job, and, and it was like, oh, this is my dream job. I'm so qualified for this. I'm going to send in my resume, but let me update it. I'm going to take out all the positive things, and I'm going to put all the things that show weakness in my life. I'm turning that baby in. Do you think you're going to get a call back? No, because that's not what the world prizes. But that's what the Corinthians prize. Paul's going to come in a minute and show him his resume. But his resume actually is boasting in his weakness. So that in the end, his weakness points to the strength of the gospel. Right? He points to how weak he is because strength is only found in Christ. You'll see it here in a little bit. But point number one on your outline, he goes through this distasteful act. He doesn't like it, doesn't want to do it. Now look at point number two. Point number two. Oh, by the way, I do have a question here on my notes. I have notes. I haven't looked at them until now. But I have them. Here's a question that I kind of put in application. Do we personally, do we, or you, do we personally brag or boast about our accomplishments? Do we brag about our career, our job title, or the network of powerful and influential people we know? Do we brag about our athletic achievements or our financial achievements and accomplishments? That's what the Corinthians were into. Now look at point number two on your outline. It says this. He goes through the sarcasm they needed to hear. Anybody fans of sarcasm in here? Right? Oh, y'all liars, right? Raise all y'all's hands. Y'all know y'all are. What is sarcasm? Sarcasm is sharp and often 
ironic or satirical language. It's meant to kind of cut and give pain, right? It's a, it's a certain, it's, it's, <laughs> use it sparingly, use it wisely, use it cautiously. It typically doesn't accomplish its intended task. But here, you can see the sarcasm that he has, but he's using it as a device to bring them to conviction. So if you look at verse 19 through 21, remember, it's like the knife we talked about. You're just going to have to go through. You're just going to have to take it. So he realizes that there's such a hard heart that these Corinthians have. He uses a bit of sarcasm. By the way, just as a personal confession, your pastor loves sarcasm. I love it. I love it when people understand it. Um, I have a guilty pleasure, and that guilty pleasure is Babylon B. Anybody ever, anybody know about Babylon B? All right, let me just say right now. Um, if you need something to lift up your day, all right, subscribe to Babylon B and just see the articles that they come out with. It is satire, it is sarcasm, but it cuts. It has a bit of truth to it, if you can kind of see. Um, one this past week, I just, it was hilarious. Um, I'll read you a couple. It's, it, they had this article, and remember, it's satirical. It's not true. I remember when Babylon B first came out and they were putting out their stuff. I remember people on social media were just like, I knew it. I knew it. Uh, but it's satirical. It's not 100% true, but there is some truth to it. They had an article this past week that said the differences between public schooled and homeschooled kids. Oh, man, this was rich. <laughs> it says in the article, homeschool kids learn how to manufacture base elements, base complex elements, uh, elements, their mothers sell those as a side hustle. Homeschool kids. Public school, they eat glue, right? It says, homeschool kids, a full day of lessons packed into two hours. Public school kids, two hours of lessons stretched into a full day. Homeschool kids, Tuesday afternoon is range day with dad. Public school kids get arrested for picking up a gun-shaped stick and saying pew pew. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's sarcasm, it's biting, it's cutting, it's somewhat fabricated, not true, but in some ways it kind of is true. You kind of get how that, how sarcasm kind of works. Now, this is a device that he's using in our text. It, by the way, don't walk out of here and go like, praise God, I've been waiting for a justification to let my smart mouth rip. Thank you, Jesus. This is the best Sunday I've ever had. no. Don't, don't think that. But he uses it. Look at the text here. Look at it. <clears throat> so in verse 20, in verse 19, he says this. For you being so wise. No, they really weren't wise. But do you, do you understand the sarcasm? Like, well, since you're so wise and you listen to foolishness, since you're so wise, let me get to your level and produce the foolishness of boasting in my own resume. For you being so wise. And then he says this. For you being so wise, in verse 19, are bearing the foolish gladly. Verse 20, he says, you bear it. If anyone enslaves you, devours you, takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone, what does he say? Hit you in the face. He's satirically, sarcasm, saying, you guys love foolishness. You're so wise. In fact, you're so wise that you think it's a good thing that someone comes and slaps you in the face. Because that's what these false apostles, they're slapping you in the face and spiritually abusing you, not telling you the true gospel message. You bear it. You think it's a great thing. He's, it's biting sarcasm. Look at verse 21. To my shame. Now, he's not really ashamed that he hasn't jumped into their foolishness, but 
he's using this sarcasm of going, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. He's telling them, we've been weak. We haven't, we haven't used... Um, we haven't used propping up our resume or talking great about ourselves to my shame. Oh, if this is the way to reach you this whole time, I should have just been talking about how great I am. Do you get kind of the sarcasm of the moment? He's trying to point it out to him. So he says this, I speak in foolishness and I am just as daring myself. So he comes in, he uses this rhetorical device, he he uses this biting sarcasm to kind of get their attention. And sometimes, can sarcasm be useful? It can sometimes, oh, be very cautious. It can be used sometimes if, it, if it's actually used to get someone's attention, showing the great disparities of what they're doing. The only problem is we have a, something called a depraved nature, right? And boy, it's really hard to use that without exalting yourself. So proceed with caution. Please don't use this as the objective, but, um, you know, fight it back and then just go subscribe to Babylon B and have a good laugh, right? Now, point number three. But I just want you to understand, he does not want to do this. But he realizes you just got to go through with it. Sometimes you just have to swallow the medicine. So he, he now proceeds into our third point, verse 22. This is point number three in your outline. He goes through it. He goes through the respectable parts of his resume. The respectable parts. Not much to it. Look in verse 22. These false teachers who are teaching them you can be saved by doing things. By doing good works. By keeping the law of Moses. He says things such as this in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's seed? So am I. This is the respectable part of his resume. The false teachers, they were Judaizers, they were Jewish, but they were teaching that you're saved by obeying such things as the Ten Commandments plus putting faith in Jesus. And these two things have to come together. And, and, they, were, and they were saying, because we're Jewish, you can know that this is right. Paul comes in and says, I'm Jewish too. I'm an Israelite, I'm a Hebrew, I'm from Abraham's seed, but I'm telling you something different. You're not saved by adding good works. You're saved by grace, through faith alone, and you'll have good works, but not to earn anything from God as a result of what you've been given by God. So Paul says, I have a resume too. I'm Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. I'm from Abraham's seed. You can track me all the way to David, to Abraham in the Old Testament. (coughs) So he goes through the point number three, the respectable parts of his resume. But I just wanted you to know, he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to crawl into the gutter and do any of this activity. But Paul's going to do what it takes to glorify God and love others. The supreme goal of man is to glorify God, enjoy him for others, and the extension of that will be a love and care and concern for others. So that's what he's doing. Now, go to point number four. He goes through general sufferings on his resume. The general sufferings. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. He says in verse 23... Are they ministers of Christ? And remember, he's referring to the false teachers. He's now putting out his resume. He just talked about the respectable parts of his resume. He got satirical about having to even do this, right? And then he even lets them know the disdain for boasting in any kind of way except in the cross of Jesus. Then he goes into verse 23, and look what he says. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as if, what does he say? 
a fool. Some of yours might say insane. Can you see the, the tension in his soul? He's like, I, I speak if I'm out of my mind. I can't believe I'm doing this in this moment. I can't believe I'm going through this. Boy, I remember there being many times swallowing that NyQuil where I thought that kind of thing. Like, this is insane. There's got to be a better way. Just let me cough all night, mom and dad. But he's got to go through it. He's got to go through it. So he says, I speak as if I'm insane or more so. So he says, this is insane that I'm about to boast, that I'm going to have to go further. This is insane. This foolishness. You perceive this to be a good thing. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to go through it. I more so. So if we're going to talk about a resume, we're going to talk about a resume that catches the eye of God. I'm going to put my resume up against the false teacher's resume. But it's a complete paradigm shift here because the resume he actually talks about is not how great he is, how much suffering and weakness he has as a result of his ministry. His resume is turned on its head. It's exactly what I told you all ago. It's as if he's sending in a resume to his dream job, but it's listing all the failures. So look what he says in verse 23. He says, And far more labors, and far more imprisonments. You know, just so you know here what we're about to read. Some of what we're about to read, you can read about in the book of Acts. But not everything that he's about to talk about is chronicled for us in the book of Acts. Paul suffered so much more than we were, are, are not even aware of when he pulls out his resume. The time of him writing this, right? He still has about 10 years of life left. There's still more suffering that we're completely unaware with. We aren't told everything. But notice what he says. He says, in far more, verse 23, imprisonments and beatings. What does it say? In beatings what? Countless. Mine says without number. Countless, without number. That's a lot of suffering. The false apostles did not believe in suffering. In fact, the false apostles taught that suffering was a sign that God has cursed you. Paul says, no, actually suffering to do gospel ministry can be a sign that God's actually blessing you. Now, it's, not, it's not that he's intentionally trying to suffer, but that was the pathway that God had. But he's showing them. They're, they think, and you think, that a good resume is how strong you are, but a great resume is one that you are, how weak you are, and how dependent on the strength of Christ. So he keeps going, he says, in beatings without number, in frequent danger of death. Paul shows that his general sufferings, he goes through this part of his resume and says, there's a difference. They don't do that. They don't suffer. That's not what they like. In fact, what they really like is the money, is what they... What they get in their pockets every time they're with you. Next, you see in verse um, 24 through 25. This is point five on your outline. He goes through some specific sufferings on his resume. So he went through the respectable parts of his resume. Then he went through the general sufferings of his resume. Then he now goes through some specific sufferings on his resume. Verse 24 through 25. Can I stop for a moment and just say something? Just because you are suffering does not mean God has cursed you. I'm going to say it again. Just because you are suffering, and I would say this, suffering for what's doing right doesn't mean God has cursed you. If you are loving your spouse as a result of your love for God, but not being treated fairly, you perceive in the moment, that suffering has a 
point. It's meant to point you to God. It's actually meant to help you to love them the way that God loves you. When you are passed over at work, when you have worked for a place for years and you are passed over, God can use that suffering. That suffering is not, does not always mean that there is a curse on you. It could mean that God is trying to teach you a principle of suffering for righteousness sake. You may own your own business and there may be other people who have the same business and they seem to prosper in it and maybe you don't or they seem to have employees that always show up for work and, and you have employees that don't show up for work and you think, what, what is that person doing that God is blessing them and what must be happening that I'm suffering? But if there's no sin that you can see on the surface, that suffering could be for a reason and just because you're suffering doesn't mean God has cursed you. We think, that suffering is always means that, God, that something bad is going on. Now, listen, sometimes suffering is a result of God's disciplined hand on us because he's trying to correct our heart, in, our heart in hand. But sometimes God's suffering is really meant to draw us in weakness back to Christ's independence, right? You've got to realize there's a category for suffering. We don't like to suffer. We don't talk about it. We don't preach about it. The Lord knows we don't even sing songs about it. I mean, do this. The most popular Christian radio stations that you can find. Do this. Test it. The next time in your car, turn to the most popular Christian station and listen to a handful of songs. And I'll be willing to bet you, none of those songs are talking about how godly it is to suffer for righteousness sake. No one likes that message. Paul comes in and says, I've been suffering. Suffering a lot. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that you can't trust what I'm telling you, that God isn't with me. Sometimes you're suffering for a good reason, for the glory of God and his plan. Let me show you my resume. They're showing you their resume by strength. I'm showing you my resume by weakness. Now, keep looking at verse 24 and 25. So he goes through some of his specific sufferings. Verse 24, he says this. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes save one. So it means this. They would take the Jews. Part of the punishment, you see it in Deuteronomy 25 that you would get whipped and you get this whip would have bone fragments and shards in it so that when you got whipped it would rip open your back it was a disciplined measure he says five times i received this from the jews right we don't even have record of that in acts that that happened but that happened five times it happened that he was that he was they call it flogging right now the interesting thing about this is if this is a unique thing that the Jews would do, that means every time Paul walked into a synagogue, which was his usual way of doing ministry, he first shows up in a city, he goes to where the Jews are, he goes to the synagogue, preaches the gospel, that that first time he opens up his mouth in the synagogue, he knows that he's probably in line for a flogging. What suffering he does. But you'll find over and over, just because he gets a flogging doesn't mean he stops going into the synagogues and telling people about Jesus. Not only that, look in verse 24. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Now, this tended to be what the Gentiles would do. They're kind of, so when he's going in among the Gentiles and they don't like what he has to say, a beating with rod. Um, by the way, I'd rather be probably beat with a rod than, than whipped with a cat of nine tails, right? I'd rather be beaten than flogged. This is what the Gentiles did. You can read about this in Acts 16, 22. We have one of those occasions that we get to see in the book of Acts. But that means that there's a couple other times that we don't really have record. But Paul's putting on his resume saying, at this point, around 55 AD, three times I had been beaten with rods. Now, just take a step back. I have yet to be flogged. I have yet to be beaten. 
this would pretty much make me want to quit. Don't you, I mean, if you kind of came into work and your boss was kind of like, all right, lean over the desk, all right? Grab a really good wooden pole, right? And I'm just going to beat the tar out of you. I think that's the day of resigning and just kind of giving up. But Paul's not done. Paul doesn't give up. And here's the crazy thing. Paul is doing something he doesn't want to do. Bless his heart. And he's talking about these two things that would have made most of us already give up. And he's not even done yet. He's not even done yet. I'm going to tell you this. Sometimes we think that we've suffered and that God has no, like suffering can't be used. But I'll tell you this. Yes, there is post-traumatic stress. But don't forget on the other side, there is post-traumatic sanctification. Every bit of suffering and pain can be used for the glory of God, especially if it's for righteousness sake. Look, keep, keep looking. He says this. Once I was stoned. You can see that in Acts 14, 19. Three times I was shipwrecked. We don't know much about shipwreck. We don't travel on ships. But back in the day, they didn't have the navigation system we have now. They didn't have the Coast Guard to come drop down the helicopter and save you. Shipwrecks happen quite often. And when it happened, it was really bad. You know what's interesting? He had three shipwrecks. I don't know about you. I have one shipwreck. Guess what I'm not doing for the rest of my life? Not getting on a ship. Just takes one time. We're done. Three shipwrecks. You know, it's hilarious. It's not hilarious. It's sad, but it's kind of hilarious. We read this and we're like, yeah, I've read in Acts 27 about Paul having a shipwreck. I remember that. Well, guess what? That's later chronologically, which means this. He actually has four shipwrecks that we know of. He had three here. You'll see later on in Acts chapter 27, four shipwrecks. Even so much, we don't have a record in Acts of this, but he said this happened. So it did look. He says three times I was shipwrecked and this scares the tar out of me. Not that there was a lot of tar. A night and a what? I spent in the what? I love the ocean. Doesn't the ocean look great? I love looking at it. I love listening to it. I love the weather. I love the sand. But you know what I don't like about the ocean? What's in it? I love the ocean. I don't like getting in it. All right. When we go, when we've been to the ocean and done like an ocean vacation, we usually pick a place that has a pool, right? A pool, cover pool, where you can look at the ocean, but swim in the water that you know is sterile and there's no fish to bite your feet, right? You just feel much better, right? And, and I'm okay with it. I don't feel like a poser. I'm okay with it. I feel good about it. But could you imagine day and night floating around in the ocean? I mean, you ever seen the creatures that are down there? Could you imagine the circling sharks and what? I'm just telling you, one shipwreck and one day and night in the sea, sorry, I'm not even going to go to vacation at the sea. I'm not even going to get in the, my little safe pool and look out in the distance. I'm done. No more ocean for Nick. So he goes through some specific sufferings on his resume. And let me tell you why he's doing this. It is distasteful. He doesn't want to do it. But he's going to do it because it's what they need to hear. It's what they need to know for the glory of God and their good. So he's going to go through it. You know, in life, sometimes there's things that God has appointed for you in your life that you're just going to have to go through it. And I'm not going to tell you it's going to be pleasurable. I'm not going to tell you it's going to be good. But I'm going to tell you, God will meet you in those difficult moments. Sometimes you're just going to have to go through it and glorify God and not yourself. So keep looking in verse 26. This is point number six. 
He now goes through it. He goes through on his resume the dangers from people and places on his resume. Look in verse 26. I have been in frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. But this is point number six. He talks about on his resume people and places that um, things he've had, he's had to gone through. I want you to notice a couple of things. First, places. He's been in dangers. Number, it's not singular, it's plural. It's S, meaning multiple times. Meaning rivers, places, sea. None of these false apostles have done any of that. They've kept themselves comfortable and nice and tight and well-resourced, pilfering the Corinthians and getting more out of them. And just so you know, religion can be prosperous. And here's the really great thing. These Judaizers can come in and go, hey, if you really want to earn your way to God, just give more money. And they get more money. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's been happening ever since. Now, the places can be a lot of suffering, right? He's been to these suffering places. But you know what's really hard? I mean, I've been in places where you could suffer in places, never to this level, but people. People. A place can hurt you, but people can just cut you. So verse 26, he lists some people. He says, hey, um, I have been robbers multiple times. I have been robbed by robbers, my own countrymen, Gentiles. We know that his own countrymen have flogged him at least five times. We know that the Gentiles have beaten him at least three times. But look at the end of verse 26. I think this is the hardest one. The hardest place to suffer with people is when they're right up close to you. Look at what he says at the end. He has been in dangers among, what does he say? That's a tough place. It's the people that you love that are close to you, right? The the people who are in Christ that are close to you. That's that's a hard place. That's a hard place to suffer. And the, the disappointing thing is that more than likely... Some of these false brothers, maybe some of those that for the 18 months he was there, he did ministry to, that these are the very ones that are telling the Corinthians everything he told you a lie. He wouldn't take a dime from you. He must not be legit. I'm legit because I'm taking money from you. False brothers. I will tell you one of the hardest things you'll ever do is have someone talk bad about you, someone slander you. And I will tell you, it's a bad thing, but it's a wonderful opportunity to grow better and not bitter. I think this is one of the things, as long as I've been in church ministry, and I've been in church ministry for a long time, God's people have lost the art of biblical, of this biblical idea of of forgiving and growing better and not bitter. In fact, I would tell you, just in a flat surface thing in our lives, we would probably be over some things in life if we would start forgiving and start growing better and not bitter. If we were... If we were as angry about our own growth and sanctification as life, in life as we are angry about other people have done to us, we, mildly, we finally might start getting somewhere in our own walk with Christ. So he says, it's been really hard. I've been in dangers among false brothers. He doesn't want to do this. I just want you to understand. He hates this whole moment. He doesn't want to do it. Go to, point, go to verse 27. This is point number seven on your outline. You still with me? You Okay. Don't you like the, we, we're going to have some sound panels go up eventually so you won't hear such reverberation, right? But maybe you love it because maybe you hear my voice and then you hear it a second time right behind, right? 
Isn't it just a sweet melody? Verse 27. He goes through extreme general sufferings on his resume. Point number seven, the extreme general sufferings. He says, I have been in labor and hardships and many sleepless nights. Many, plural, many sleepless nights. (laughs) There's just about anything you can take in life, but have you ever been multiple nights without sleep? Man, in starvation and thirst, often hungry, often hungry. In cold and not even enough clothing. Cold, hungry, and without sleep. I can think almost of no worse way to kind of start living, to be living life, right? This is his resume. Point number eight. This is the worst of all, verse 28. He goes through the internal sufferings of his resume. The internal. The externals are bad. In this, where you would think, Paul, bless your heart. I just want to give you a hug. This just sounds really terrible what you've been through. But then he comes in and goes, that was bad. But you know what's really bad? It's the internal stuff that's really hard. Now look at the text. It's interesting. He says in verse 28, Apart from such external things on his resume, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. He says, aside from all this, the pressure, the the press and strain of concern. Now, do you have an ESV version of the Bible? Anybody have an ESV version, right? What word does he use in the ESV version? Instead of concern, what word does he use? He used the word anxiety, right? Anxiety. Now, the Greek word here, that's not a bad, uh, the word concern or anxiety, that's, those aren't bad translated words for the text. I just point that to you because the ESV translators were confident that, that you would understand the magnitude of what he was going through, how it brought in anxiousness. Now, before you start thinking, wait a minute, Nick, I thought anxiousness, worry was a sin. Is it okay that Paul's doing that? Well, I would say there is an, there is an ungodly form of worry and anxiety that we see in Matthew 6 that you're worrying about tomorrow, right? But there is a holy concern. A, you could call it a holy anxiousness for the day's event. Like, for instance, you, if you have a time that you're supposed to be somewhere... You should have a holy concern to show up at a certain time. If your kids need to eat before they go to school, there should be a holy concern. And your kids are going to be so mad if you send them to school without breakfast, right? I mean, there's a holy concern in the day. But So the point that the ESV translators make, but also what we see here is Paul says, there's a holy concern I have for the church. This is a pressure on me day in, day out. The internal. You know, some people think, well... If you have internal pressure, you can't, you can't glorify God and do good and enjoy Him. Yeah, you can. In fact, Paul, in a minute, you're going to see that this causes them actually to thank the Lord even more. Keep looking at verse 28, verse 29. Look what he says. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is made to stumble without my burning concern? Basically, he's saying the false apostles, they would have caved by now. If they went through all these sufferings externally and internally, they would have caved. Who is weak? I'm weak. Who has this concern, this burdening concern? I do. He said, look how weak I am. Look at my resume. Look how much weakness there is. Now go to point number nine. And this is the last point. He goes through a humbling experience to cap it all off. In verse 30 through 33, he says this. If I have to boast... All the weakness I have, if I have to boast, I will boast in what pertains to my weakness. Now, 
Verse 30, I'm going to come back to in just a minute, so hold your place. But I want you to look at verse 31 through 32. If you want to see this happen out in, in Acts chapter 9, you can read about the story of what happens in verse 31 through 33. And basically, the gist is, uh, when Paul becomes a Christian, he's on the road to Damascus, right? He's got letters, he's persecuting Christians. But we find in Acts chapter 9, in this text, what we find is that Paul is let out of the city of Damascus by a rope. Right? You go through the front gates because you have a, 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 you have a position of prestige. That's what he had before coming to Christ. Once he came to Christ, he became a persecuted man. And so Paul kind of gives him an example and says, let me just show you how weak it is. I don't enter through the front of the city. I actually had to get let out. You can read this in Acts chapter 9. I had to get let out of the city in a basket. Like common refuge and garbage and trash from a city that gets let down in a bucket by a rope. That's me. That's the weakness that I am. These false apostles claim how great they are by how much they have on the resume. I just want to tell you, my whole entire ministry has been about weakness. Now let me end with this. Here's a concluding thought. Go back to verse 30. If I have to boast, I will boast in what pertains to my weakness. I will boast in what pertains to my weakness. So in the end, here's what Paul tells them. He says, my resume shows a ton of weakness. The false apostles, their resume shows a prosperity-drenched gospel, while Paul's resume shows a Jesus-centered, relying in the strength of the gospel type of resume. Paul's resume was one that walked in so much weakness and humility that he had nowhere else to turn but Christ. Paul's resume is a resume that relies on the strength of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Look over, and we'll see this in some coming weeks, but you can look over ahead. Sneak preview. Go to chapter 12, verse 10. Paul says this, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insult, with distresses. This is chapter 12, verse 10. With persecutions, with hardships, for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, what does he say? The point, the way up is the way down. So Paul says, I have to go through it. I have to go through it. Sometimes in life, I just want you to realize, we, this Christian life isn't easy. If someone told you coming to Christ would make all your dreams come true, I'm sorry, they sold you a terrible bill of goods. But I can tell you this, God is good. And if you'll bow your knee, confess him as Lord, trust him as Savior, you're in for the ride of your life. Nothing will be perfect. Nothing will be absolutely pretty. But I can promise you that he'll be good. And I can promise you that every bit of suffering you go through, every bit of that weakness is meant to point you to the strength of Christ, is meant to mold you, is meant to grow you better and not bitter. There is only, only Christians have the ability to absorb the difficulties of life and still praise God with uplifted hands. Only those in Christ can do this. If you're here and you're not in Christ, let me implore you and beg you. Beg you, you have hell to gain, you have, hell to, you have heaven to gain and hell to lose by coming to Christ, but also you have God right now to gain. When you gain God right now, there is the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life when you become a follower of Jesus. And that Holy Spirit will teach you how to absorb the weaknesses of life and have greater reliance on Christ himself. That's what Paul gets across. Paul's, Paul's prayer and concern is that they would now repent. They would now see, wait a minute, we bought into this false gospel. We bought into the prosperity gospel. It's not those that have this resume that all that glitters is gold is really gold. It's that those who in weakness are pursuing at the foot of the cross, knowing where their place is, that's 
Those are the ones that are really giving us the gospel message. Could we stand together and could we pray over this and could we sing together? I want to pray for you if you're not in Christ. I want to pray for your salvation. I want to pray for us as we close out this formal worship service time. Would you bow your heads with me? We are thankful. God, would you save someone today who's not in Christ? Would you show them their need for a Savior? Would you show them their sin? Would you show them that they can't earn their way to heaven? Let them not buy into the heresy that many of these Corinthians had. God, would you show them Jesus today? Would they even now pray a prayer of salvation? Would they, would they admit their sin, turn from it, and trust Christ as Lord? Would you do it? Then would you have your hand on the rest of our time? We, we really do need this. We, as we sing, we need this. As we now have this, this time of gathering around a meal and the Lord's Supper, God's people need to hear from each other. As image bearers, we need each other. God, would you bless this even next element that we have coming up? Would you do it? Now accept this praise offering as we prepare. In Jesus' name, amen.